You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, everybody. Thank you guys for attending uh, today's lecture. We'll be talking about dietary strategies for cardiovascular disease. Uh, this is one of the topics that I've been very passionate about for most of my career um, and actually spent a big chunk of my graduate work uh, working on cardiovascular disease uh, in the context of nutrition, obesity, diabetes, and exercise. Uh, so I will tell you guys a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Brad. Uh, I am currently the chief operating officer for a nutrition coaching company and a wellness coaching company uh, called Macros Inc. I'm also the director of science for a biotech company called Velocity Animal Sciences. And I am clinical faculty at Washington State University. Uh, I did my doctoral and my master's work at the University of Idaho. Uh, there, I primarily worked in uh, cardiovascular labs. Uh, we looked at you know, both diet and exercise and how those affect the, the heart, uh, especially in people with uh, diabetes and obesity. Uh, and I did my undergraduate work at Washington State University. So I've been able to kind of stick around the Northwest of the country um, and have been involved with NASM for several years and have been involved in some of their big projects, such as the um, CNC course um, and some other things that will be coming out in the next few years. So very thankful to be here and thank you guys for attending and look forward to uh, discussing this topic with you guys today. So we have an agenda today. I want to walk you through a little bit of the roadmap uh, of how we should think about cardiovascular disease and specifically how it relates to um, diet and nutrition and uh, really probably how we break it down into very simple ideas because it is a very complex topic. Uh, so the first thing we're going to do really is just cover how do we understand cardiovascular disease risk? So most people, you know, the way we think about cardiovascular disease is kind of a binary thing. We have it or we don't. Um, and then we also really think about it as a single thing maybe causes it. But in reality, cardiovascular disease is best understood as a kind of aggregation of risk over a lifetime. And we'll talk a little bit about that to start. And then we'll talk about the individual risk factors. So this cumulative risk can be broken down into different factors. And we'll talk a little bit about how dietary patterns really affect uh, each of those risk factors. And then we're also going to talk about, you know, very specific nutrients. So we'll, we'll shift from kind of dietary patterns to actual specific nutrients and how those affect cardiovascular disease either directly or through some of the risk factors we're going to talk about in the opening part of this lecture. And then we're going to actually talk about some kind of not prescriptive, but some descriptive ways uh, of how to eat to minimize cardiovascular disease. So 
that's the roadmap. That's the agenda. That's the course we're going to set out on. So I'm going to kind of take us through each of these pieces um, as we go ahead. So the very first thing is really, how do we understand cardiovascular disease? So if we think about really just the course of a human life is every day that we wake up, um, we are exposed to the world, right? And that means the food that we consume, pollutants, uh, just genetic risks that we carry with us, those things amplify over time. And so as we go from, you know, age zero to age 100, we're accumulating risk for developing diseases and cardiovascular disease is one of those. And so this graph really kind of shows the three main ways we can proceed through life and how some of the choices we make either, you know, with environmental choices, with um, career choices, with, you know, stress management choices, and then with nutrition choices, whether that risk is increased or decreased. So we accumulate risk every single day um, and we can increase that risk or we can decrease that risk from kind of baseline uh, over time. So for example, Let's just say that we knew a very specific food when we were exposed to it led to a small increase in cardiovascular disease risk. So that would kind of shift us toward this red line. Um, and the earlier that we're exposed to that risk, kind of the more it accumulates over time. Conversely, maybe there's foods that we can consume that can reduce our risk. And the earlier that we can kind of change that trajectory, the more that that kind of manifests over the course of a lifetime. So that's kind of really the way to think about it. Now, how do we operationalize this? What does this really mean for a given person at a given time in their life? So if we take the same idea of how do we understand cardiovascular disease risk, and we think about you know, some of the nutrition research literature or exercise or really anything in general, and we take a snapshot in time of a single person. So you know, let's say we take a given person, let's say they're a 50-year-old you know, female, um, and we look at, okay, what is their risk of cardiovascular disease? So let's just say the odds of that person having cardiovascular disease at a, at a given time is, let's just say one, right? That's just the average risk. Now let's look at that person at that same given time and say, okay, they've engaged in all these kind of unhealthy behaviors that we know associate with cardiovascular disease. Um, let's say it's, you know, they've been smoking for their entire life and they have a BMI of 45. These are both independent risk factors for cardiovascular disease. So their risk may be 10 times the normal person. So they would have this increased risk profile. Now, let's say that same person, instead of, you know, smoking and having a BMI of 40, let's say this person has a, a healthy BMI. Uh, they eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and they get a lot of exercise and all those things combine to kind of reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. So maybe their risk is, you know, 50% of, of normal. So they've cut their risk in half. So that's kind of what, how we need to start thinking about really how do we understand cardiovascular disease risk? Now there's a very important kind of point here is we never eliminate the risk, right? We're always accumulating this over the course of our lifetime. And we can do things to increase that risk, or we can do things to decrease that risk. So just keep in mind that whenever we talk about nutrition or diet for cardiovascular disease, what we're doing is we're modifying risk. We're not eliminating it and we're not like instantly causing it. We're just changing. Imagine we're on a probability scale and we're changing it 
you know, from 0.5 to 0.4, 0.5 to 0.6, but we're never going to zero and we're never really going to one, right? This is really the best way to think about it. So that's risk. Now, what are the things that contribute to cardiovascular disease risk? So the way that we understand it in kind of the, the medical scientific literature is if we think about cardiovascular disease as kind of a whole block or a whole pie, we can assign different risk variables to uh, different factors. And really, if we think about it, there's kind of three main categories. There's uh, we'll call metabolic risk factors. There's demographic risk factors. And then there's you know, what I'll call hemodynamic factors. There's a few other kind of minor categories, but really we'll just kind of bend them into these ones for simplicity's sake. So metabolic factors really relate to um, things like your blood sugar, right? Do you have elevated fasting blood sugar? Do you have normal fasting blood sugar? What does your cholesterol look like? You know, specifically your, your HDL or your LDL. And we'll talk about those in a little bit. Uh, what's your triglycerides? Uh, what's your insulin sensitivity, right? Those are kind of the metabolic risk factors. And we know that dietary strategies or dietary interventions or specific food groups or food types can affect metabolic parameters. Another one is hemodynamics. So this really relates to your blood pressure and your vasculature. So things like systolic and diastolic blood pressure and arterial stiffness, right? We know certain things such as salt or potassium can really affect blood pressure uh, we know that certain foods like nitric oxide rich foods can affect arterial stiffness. So these are the things that we think about with risk factors. And then the last group really is uh, demographic factors. Now, a lot of these are not modifiable, right? Especially kind of in the context of nutrition, right? The foods we eat don't really change our gender. We know that there's a difference between biological males and biological females on their risk profile for cardiovascular disease. Some of it has to do with um, hormonal differences, things like that. You can't really change that through nutrition. Uh, genetics, right? There's some nutrient genetic interactions, but there are some genetic variants, like there are some cholesterol gene variants that can drastically increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. Generally speaking, that's not modifiable. Um, so when we think about risk factors in cardiovascular disease, really the ones that we want to focus on from a nutrition perspective are the metabolic ones and the hemodynamic ones. So we kind of talked about this a little bit, but when we think about specifically in cardiovascular disease, the main modifiable risk factors, especially from a nutrition perspective, is blood pressure, fasting glucose, cholesterol, triglycerides, uh, BMI or your body mass index, uh, fasting insulin, and then the last one's inflammation. We're not going to touch on that too much in this lecture, um, but that is something that we can have slight modifications to through dietary intervention. So just to kind of wrap up this first portion is really understanding risk. The first most important thing to understand is there's no way to completely eliminate risk. We're never going to get to zero. Um, every day you wake up, your risk of developing cardiovascular disease or kind of progressing cardiovascular disease is never zero, um, but you can reduce it. Just remember, there's no way to completely eliminate it. Uh, dietary approaches should be in the context of reducing current risk. So today, what can I do? 
and then also future risk, right? So if we think about kind of our risk trajectory is the things that we do now. Um, so the, the dietary approaches that we take really should be focused on reducing current risk and future risk as well. Um, and remember that future and current risk are not the same things, right? So if somebody has established cardiovascular disease, the things that we do in modifying that risk are much different than if somebody does not have, you know, pre-established cardiovascular disease, um, but is trying to prevent either the initiation or progression. So it's important to remember that, you know, as we are thinking about what strategy should we employ, is this reducing future risk or is this actually reducing current risk? So now let's talk a little bit about kind of the second point, and that is, you know, dietary patterns and risk factors. So how do we think about how does our dietary pattern affect specific risk factors? So there's really five main risk factors that I kind of want to touch on today. Uh, the first one is dyslipidemia. So what this means, this term really just means, do we have kind of bad changes in cholesterol? So LDL and HDL and our triglycerides, right? So this is kind of the lipids in our body. Are they off from what they should be? Uh, the second one is hypertension. So this is elevated blood pressure. Is your systolic blood pressure elevated? And is your diastolic blood pressure elevated? So this is hypertension. Are there things we can think about from a dietary perspective that may, may be able to you know, reduce blood pressure? Um, hyperglycemia. So we know that elevated blood glucose is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. What are the nutritional things or the dietary patterns that we can adopt to reduce glycemia? Obesity. Now, obesity ties into the rest of these, but independently, obesity is a very strong risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So what are the different dietary strategies or options that we can use to reduce obesity or lower body weight in people? And the last one, we're not going to touch on it too much here, is, uh, is inflammation. So inflammation um, is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And most of what we know about that one will tie into obesity. So most of the nutrition interventions that actually address inflammation will be addressed when we discuss uh, obesity. So really the best way to kind of summarize uh, what dyslipidemia means for cardiovascular disease is, is thinking about it in two ways. There's some lipid markers or fat markers or cholesterol markers uh, that increase your risk for cardiovascular disease. The two major ones are LDL, so your low-density lipoproteins, or what we've often called bad cholesterol. Um, that's not an accurate term for it, but it's kind of what we've been kind of told canonically is LDL cholesterol. Now, generally speaking, for most people, as LDL cholesterol levels increase, your risk of developing cardiovascular disease increases. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't get cardiovascular disease if you have very low levels of LDL. And it doesn't mean you will 100% get cardiovascular disease if your LDL levels are high. It just means that in a population, as LDL levels go, go up, your risk of developing cardiovascular disease also goes up. Uh, the same relationship holds true for triglycerides. Um, so triglycerides are kind of the form of stored fat that gets transported around your body. And very similar to LDL, as triglyceride levels go up, 
we see an increase in cardiovascular disease risk. Conversely, HDL, which we've also kind of canonically been told is good cholesterol, uh, this has an inverse relationship. So as HDL level goes up, generally speaking, the risk of cardiovascular disease decreases. So when we think about, you know, food behaviors, food patterns, dietary patterns, and how they relate to dyslipidemia, really, we should be looking at, okay, what are the dietary patterns that we can adopt that reduce LDL, reduce triglycerides, and maybe raise HDL? So that's kind of the question we want to ask is what are dietary interventions that we can engage in that maybe lower our LDL levels, our triglyceride levels, and increase our HDL levels? So uh, I really wanted to just, on each of these risk factors, summarize different dietary decisions that you can make that will actually enact these kind of beneficial changes to your lipids in your body. So we're going to kind of walk through some of these decisions. We'll talk about what is the effect of that decision? How strong is that effect? So is it a major impact or is it a minor impact? And then what is the strength of the evidence? So how sure are we from a scientific perspective that this action actually does do what it says it does? So the very first one is there's a type of fat in our diet called trans fats. Now, the exact specifics of that type of fat are not super important, but this was a type of fat that was very popular in diets from probably about the 1950s all the way through the like late 2000s, um, 2010 ish, somewhere in that time frame. And this trans fat was found in things like margarine and a lot of like shelf stable foods. And over the course of about 50 years, they realized that there's a really strong connection between uh, trans fat intake and increases in LDL cholesterol and triglycerides. And so when you reduce trans fats in your diet, you see a pretty marked decrease in LDL cholesterol and triglycerides. The strength of that effect is very strong and the evidence is very high. So we've actually come to the conclusion as a scientific community that trans fats are not really safe to have in our diet. Um, and so the FDA has labeled them as generally not recognized as safe and has called for all food manufacturers to not include these foods in your food supply. So for the most part, these foods or these fats, excuse me, have been removed from our diet. Uh, another decision that you can make is to consume a low glycemic diet. So foods that are kind of low on the glycemic index. Now there is some evidence to suggest that this can lower two risk factors, um, LDL and triglycerides, but the actual strength of this effect is fairly weak. So it means if you go from a normal glycemic diet to a low glycemic diet, the effect on lowering LDL and triglycerides is, is quite small, right? So it's not a huge benefit to you. Uh, and the other thing is the strength of the evidence for this is, is pretty modest. Some studies show there's a pretty good effect. Some studies show there's not a great effect. Um, so this is one of those ones that's kind of like, in the hierarchy of decisions I'm going to make, this one falls kind of in the middle or towards the bottom. Uh, the next one is replacing saturated fats. So saturated fats are another type of fat. Um, we've heard a lot about, does it cause heart disease? Does it not cause heart disease? And there's the kind of consensus is that if you replace, so let's say you're concerned, currently consuming 10% of your daily calories in saturated fat. If you swap that out for either a polyunsaturated fat or even a carbohydrate, you will lower your 
LDL cholesterol, and you'll slightly reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, the strength of this effect is moderate, so it's not a huge risk reduction, but it does reduce risk to some extent. And the evidence for this is actually quite high. There's been numerous randomized controlled trials on this. There have been several meta-analyses, and almost all of them agree that if you replace saturated fat in your diet with one of those other options, you do see a reduced risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, primarily through lowering LDL. We see something very similar with fiber intake. So if you increase your fiber intake, you also see slight reductions in LDL cholesterol uh, with a moderate effect and very high levels of evidence. Now, the last one is lowering alcohol intake. We do know that if you take somebody who drinks you know, two, three, four plus drinks a day, and we lower that intake to maybe one a day or a couple a week, we do see a reduction in triglycerides. And that actually does result in uh, a pretty strong effect and a pretty high level of certainty with the evidence. Uh, so this is, um, you know, just some of the data showing what is the effect of kind of that glycemic index. So this is just uh, some research from a couple of studies showing that as you increase your glycemic index, you do see these effects on LDL um, and triglycerides. So, you know, we can see if you go from the highest intake of a glycemic index to the lowest intake on a glycemic index, uh, you see a reduction in your serum triglycerides of about 12, which is about a 10% improvement on that one piece of your cardiovascular risk profile. So this is kind of just to show you what is the strength of that effect. Um, and how we kind of see that manifest in, uh, in risk factors. So one of the next ones is, is hypertension. So we talked a little bit about dyslipidemia, and now we're going to talk about hypertension or elevated blood pressure. Now, elevated blood pressure is one of the most straightforward things that we know about cardiovascular disease. As your systolic and diastolic blood pressures increase, your risk of cardiovascular disease increases. This is very straightforward. It's very well known. Um, and pretty much every intervention that lowers blood pressure quite drastically reduces your risk of developing cardiovascular disease and especially kind of cardiovascular events like uh, heart attacks and strokes. So what can we do from a dietary perspective to reduce uh, blood pressure? There's really four main ways we can do that um, outside of lowering body weight, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, one is if you have elevated blood pressure, so if your blood pressure is really kind of above 130 over 80 or 140 over 90, reducing sodium intake can pretty drastically lower your blood pressure. So this is a very strong effect, and the strength of this evidence is very high. So we've seen this um, in numerous studies and numerous different you know, types of interventions. If you have hypertension, lowering your sodium intake does reduce your blood pressure. Uh, if you increase your fruit and vegetable intake, you also see a reduction in blood pressure. Um, the effect of this is moderate. So it's probably about 20 to 50% of the effect of lowering sodium. Um, and the strength of this evidence is quite high. So there's been numerous randomized trials and even some meta-analyses to show this is a strong um, or a moderately strong effect. And it is highly reproducible. Interestingly, lowering your saturated fat does also appear to slightly reduce blood pressure. It's not a huge effect. I'd say it's probably 10 to 30% of what we see from lowering sodium. Um, and the strength of this evidence appears to be a little bit 
a little bit shaky. It may be that a lot of the diets that lower saturated fat also lower sodium intake and lower body weight. So we're not sure if it's specific to lowering saturated fat or kind of a byproduct of a change in your dietary habits. And then the last one is you can increase potassium. So as you lower sodium and you increase potassium, you can kind of see a synergistic drop in blood pressure. So whereas lowering sodium reduces blood pressure, increasing potassium uh, does reduce blood pressure. Now, this effect is much smaller than lowering sodium. So if you if somebody drops their sodium intake pretty substantially, um, they can see reductions in blood pressure of you know up to 10 millimeters of mercury, uh, which is you know about five to ten percent for most people. Increasing potassium is more in the neighborhood of like three to five millimeters of mercury. So it's it's a little bit less, but it does have a, a, a important effect for a lot of people. So this is kind of a, just some data from one of the randomized trials showing, you know, if we take people and we put them on a controlled diet or a reduced sodium diet, that there are decreases in blood pressure that actually favor low sodium diets. So the next one is hyperglycemia. So this is just elevated blood sugar. And we can look at this from either kind of a random fasting blood glucose or a measurement that we call HbA1c, which is kind of a a three-month snapshot of what has your blood sugar been on average over a three-month time span. So really what we know is very similar to blood pressure. As fasting glucose increases, you see an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Uh, we see this in pretty much every single study that we've done to date. So what are some things that you can do to really lower uh blood glucose. There's a few ways that you can do it. One is you can lower the glycemic index of your food, right? So if you consume uh, lower glycemic index foods, you actually do see a reduction in fasting glucose. Now, it's very important to remember that this effect is, is pretty moderate, right? So this says maybe a couple percent reduction in fasting glucose. So this isn't going to take your glucose from 150 to 80, it may take it from 150 to 140, 145. And that the strength of this evidence is a little bit weak. And I say that mostly because the evidence seems to suggest that lower, lowering glycemic index, um, it, the effect on the fasting blood glucose may be more due to the fact that this reduces body weight than the specific carbohydrate glucose content of the food you're consuming. Um, another one is the Mediterranean diet pattern. So this, uh, this diet is kind of, you know, low in red meat, high in fish, uh, high in whole grains, olive oils, um, nuts, seeds, things like that. Uh, this has been shown to reduce fasting glucose levels and actually increase insulin sensitivity. The strength of this is a little bit stronger than just lowering your glycemic index. Um, and the strength of the evidence for this is quite strong. So there's been numerous randomized trials uh, examining the Mediterranean diet. The, the next one is increasing fruit and vegetable intake. So similar to, you know, lowering blood pressure, um, increasing your fruit and vegetable intake also reduces fasting glucose and increases insulin sensitivity. Now the effect of this is small, but the evidence is quite strong. And then the last one, and probably the most important one is caloric restriction. So anytime that you lower calories and lose body weight, you almost always see 
pretty robust drops in fasting glucose and increases in insulin sensitivity. And the strength of this effect is very large. Um, and the strength of the evidence is, is quite strong. Now, the next one and kind of the last independent risk factor we'll talk about is uh, obesity. So pretty much across the board, as BMI increases or body fat percentage increase increases, you see a pretty robust increase in uh, cardiovascular disease risk. So if you look at you know BMI categories, you just see a graded increase across BMI categories um, as risk continues. Now, one of the most interesting things about obesity is it explains a lot of the independent cardiovascular disease risk factors. So we talked about some of the metabolic ones. We talked about the hemodynamic ones, and I'm not going to touch on the inflammation ones too much, mostly because the uh, inflammation related component to cardiovascular disease is almost entirely driven through um, excess adipose tissue. So as you reduce body weight, you actually reduce all of the other risk factors as well. And so this is why, you know, maintaining a healthy body weight uh, and lowering body fat is actually one of the most beneficial things you can do for cardiovascular disease. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of dietary strategies and patterns that are effective for weight loss. And in a context that kind of allows you to really understand what you need to do. So when we think about, you know, weight gain, weight loss, weight management, there's kind of a hierarchy of importance. And I kind of put this into a cartoonish pyramid to where these are the things that actually matter in terms of dietary patterns for addressing obesity. The biggest one and kind of the, the major foundation is calorie balance, right? If you're in an energy surplus or an energy deficit, then from there, um, things like macronutrient ratios, nutrient density, and nutrient timing all three of those really can combine to change somebody's specific food choices and their overall habits that can actually, you know, then uh, affect or address the calorie balance piece. And then, you know, you have supplements and specific foods and those really, the effect that they have on obesity is, is very small. So weight loss, as it relates to supplements and specific foods are kind of the last two to 3% of any kind of weight loss piece. So, uh, really pretty much everything leads to caloric restriction. And there's a few different mechanisms by which we get there. One is habit change, right? So anytime you go from what your current diet is to, let's say you go from what you're currently eating to, let's just say a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting, that's a huge change in habits and often food environment, right? And so this usually leads you to just eat less. So if you go from eating every food there is, to, hey, I'm only eating foods that are high in protein and fat, you're probably taking a thousand calories of your diet out every day. Uh, the next one is food restriction. So right, this may be, hey, I'm going on a gluten-free diet. You're restricting an entire food group out uh, and that causes you to reduce calorie intake. A reduced palatability. So a lot of times people will go on like, hey, I'm going on a Nutrisystem diet where they kind of eat this bland prepackaged food that's normally like calorie allotted. But the other thing is the food just doesn't taste great. We don't have this drive to consume a lot of food. So we eat less calories. Um, some diets will, you know, promote things like, Hey, you're really eating kind of chicken and kale for every meal. And this kind of is like, Hey, we're eating more protein, which is a high satiety food. Um, and then we're eating a lot of, you know, fibrous veggies, which are very low calorie and very filling. This 
also leads to caloric restriction. So when we think about pretty much any dietary pattern, um, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the options later, almost all of them have different routes to getting there, but they all lead to caloric restriction. So this is why we can see so many diets um, that can be effective. So if we look at, let's just say a couple of the major diets, um, there's been some studies that have looked at like the four main major diets kind of back in probably the, the 90s, um, early 2000s. So this was a study where they took people and they randomized them to an Atkins diet, which is kind of like a modern day low carb diet, a zone diet, uh, a Weight Watchers diet, which is kind of a, a modern day, if it fits your macros or kind of just track your calories um, type of diet, and then a vegan plant-based diet. So, right, these are very different approaches. Some are very low carb, high fat. Some are very high carb, low fat. Some are, you know, just count your calories. And what we noticed across these studies is it didn't matter which dietary pattern you chose. They all led to roughly the same amount of weight loss. Um, and what really mattered when you kind of dove into these studies is it is the, the adherence to a calorie restriction that actually dictates whether people lost weight or gain weight, not what specific diet were they, uh, you know, put into. Another one is, um, we've done studies where we've actually looked at very specific macronutrient ratios. So does somebody who has a, you know, uh, 65% carbohydrate diet lose more weight than somebody who has a 35% carbohydrate diet? Does having a higher protein intake have a substantially different result than somebody who has a modest protein intake? And the answer is that in every group, you lose roughly the same amount of weight, right? In six months, it's maybe 10, 15 pounds. Um, and that even the kind of recidivism or the, the weight regain is very similar across all macronutrient ratios. So really it's calorie balance and adherence, not what specific foods am I eating? Um, and you know, what's the specific macronutrient ratio that dictates weight loss. So when we think about obesity being a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease, both directly and then through all the other risk factors is how do we maintain calorie restriction? What are the different dietary options we have? And really it's whatever diet somebody can adhere to that causes them to lose weight. Now, one of the really important aspects of kind of adherence and maintaining caloric restriction is this idea of what we'll call food palatability. So this is really how much do we enjoy our food and not just how much do we enjoy it, but how much does that food drive us to consume more food? So the analogy that one of my um, colleagues always gives me is imagine you've just had one of the best meals of your entire life. Uh, you're sitting in a restaurant, you feel incredibly full and the dessert course comes out. It is one of these just like molten lava cakes. That's just going to blow your mind. Right. And the waiter says, Hey, would you like this dessert? What's the likelihood that you're going to say, you know, I'm too full. I'm not going to eat it. Right. Most of us are going to say, Hey, I can always find room for a molten lava cake. Now imagine that same waiter comes out with a plate of broccoli and says, Hey, sir, would you like another plate of broccoli? Your drive to consume that broccoli and kind of the hedonism or the enjoyment factor is much lower than the molten lava cake. I'm just going to take a drink of water. 
so this is re this relates to food palatability. <clears throat> so how much do we enjoy the food we're eating and how much reward or pleasure does that give us? So this is a, here's just some data kind of showing one, how does food palatability affect how much we eat at a given meal? And on the left, we have a graph of as we increase how much people enjoy their food or how palatable it is, it has a very large effect on how much you consume in a given meal, right? So as we go from low to high, you can actually see a, you know, almost 40% increase in the amount of food you consume in a given meal. So imagine instead of eating, you know, 800 calories, now you're eating 1200 calories <clears throat> and do that three times a day. I'm going to drink a little more water here. <clears throat> Additionally, it, not only does it relate to how much you consume at a meal, but then how satisfied are you after the meal, right? So satiety is kind of how long do we stay satiated? How much does the food actually kind of keep us from wanting to consume more food later? And the more that we enjoy food, the less satiated it actually is, the more that we kind of want more of that food. So um, let's move on to topic number three. So now we talk a little bit about specific nutrients in cardiovascular disease. So we've talked a little bit about what dietary patterns um, can we adopt to kind of reduce the risk of different of cardiovascular disease through separate risk factors. So now let's talk about specific nutrients themselves and how they relate to cardiovascular disease. And we're primarily going to do this by talking about four main nutrients, because these are the ones that are most tightly related to cardiovascular disease and that we can actually um, have substantial and meaningful effects on our risk by kind of modulating how we consume these. The first one is um, saturated fat. So I'm not going to go, you know, too far into the research here. Um, cause there's a lot of nuance, but <clears throat> excuse me, all the smoke on the, the West coast from the wildfires is getting to me today. Uh, all of the research, when we kind of take all the randomized trials, all the observational studies, all the meta-analyses, here's really how we think about saturated fats. So as you increase your risk or your intake, of saturated fats from low to high, we see kind of a small graded increase in, in health risks, specifically cardiovascular disease. Um, additionally, like strokes, cancers, we also see a slight increase. So if we think about just increases in saturated fat intakes do come with increased risk. Now that doesn't mean if you have a moderate intake of saturated fat, you're going to get cardiovascular disease. It just means you have an increased risk. Now, if you replace that with monounsaturated fats or polyunsaturated fats, as you kind of swap those fats in and out, you actually do see a slight decrease in risk. And then as you kind of get to further intakes of either of those, your risk kind of flattens out and more is not better. So the story around saturated fat is consume moderate amounts where you can replace some of your saturated fat with monounsaturated fats with things like olive oil, avocados, things like that. That's great. Or polyunsaturated fats, like some of the, the seed oils that are kind of minimally processed that can reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. 
Now, the next one is trans fats. So we talked about this earlier where reducing trans fats really reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease, primarily through lowering cholesterol and triglycerides. It also does reduce some inflammation and then also some kind of direct risk of cardiovascular disease independent of those. And so this was, uh, this was three studies that were done uh, and this is kind of a, a forest plot that kind of just summarizes these large trials in, in all of these trials, as you increase your trans fat intake, you see a pretty marked increase in cardiovascular disease risk, like somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% increases in, in risk at any given time for somebody. So lowering trans fats is a very beneficial way to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. The nice thing about our current generation and future generations is this is one of those nutrition decisions that we've kind of offloaded to policy, right? The FDA, at least in the United States has said, Hey, we're not really allowing these in our foods anymore because the data is so strong. We're going to not consume them as a society. Um, the next one is we talked about this a little bit earlier, but sodium and cardiovascular disease. So amongst people with hypertension, lowering sodium intake, Pretty, has pretty substantial risk reduction. So this was um, two large trials that looked at how does sodium restriction not just affect you know blood pressure, but how does it affect your overall resist your overall risk of cardiovascular disease? And in kind of overall, the risk reduction is somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty to forty percent. So if you have established hypertension, you have elevated blood pressure lowering sodium actually can reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease by somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40%, which is not a, a minor risk reduction, right? It's pretty robust. Um, and that's a pretty strong effect. So if you're somebody who does have hypertension, limiting your sodium intake is a very smart move. Now, uh, the next one is kind of animal meat. So over the last probably 30 years, there's been quite a bit of research on, okay, what exactly is the role with meat and cardiovascular disease? <clears throat> and the best way to think about it is to kind of stratify it into three main types of meat. We have processed red meat, which is things like, you know, cured deli meats like pepperoni, salami, things like that. Unprocessed red meat, which would be, <clears throat> um, you know, like lean steaks, things like that. And then the last one would be fish meat. So fish meat is an animal uh, meat. It's fish, um, but it is a meat product. So as you increase your intake of processed red meat, you see an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. This shows up in virtually every study. So the evidence is fairly strong and the effect is actually quite strong as well. So limiting processed red meat intake really does appear to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. If we kind of aggregate all of the research on unprocessed red meat, really we don't see a strong signal. So unprocessed red meat in moderation appears to be relatively safe for heart disease. Now, there is some evidence to suggest that if you, kind of like saturated fat, if you swap out some of the red meat, even unprocessed with other, you know, whether it's fish or some plant-based proteins, you can reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease further. And then the last one is fish meat. So as you go from kind of zero intake of fish to modest amounts, you can see a small reduction in cardiovascular disease risk. But as you kind of, if you go from, you know, moderate fish intake to all fish intake, you don't see, you know, 
a much greater reduction in risk. So this brings us to kind of number four. How do we, you know, kind of make these things actionable? And how do we eat to minimize cardiovascular disease? Now, it's important to realize this part of the discussion is a little bit more on future risk and not just current risk. So this is how do most people, you know, think about setting up their life for minimizing cardiovascular disease. I just want to reiterate this piece here before we really dive into um, the actual recommendations and just to kind of recenter our focus. There is no way to completely eliminate risk. Dietary approaches should be in the context of reducing current and future risk, and that those are not always the same thing. <clears throat> so here's really kind of the best way to summarize the things that you can do from a dietary perspective to kind of reduce your overall risk. The very first thing is maintain healthy body fat. Notice I didn't say body weight, but a body fat number uh, through calorie balance. Uh, lower your overall glycemic load. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, replace your saturated fat whenever possible. This doesn't mean you have to eliminate all saturated fat intake, but be mindful of it and replace it when you can. Um, increase your fiber intake. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, lower your alcohol intake. Um, eliminate your trans fats and lower your sodium intake. Um, kind of the, the next idea is this is really kind of the, the pyramid of how you prioritize uh, diet for cardiovascular disease, right? Calorie balance, moderate fruit and vegetable intake, low processed meat intake. This is mean you can never have a slice of pepperoni pizza, but be very mindful that including that as a staple in your diet does carry with it risk. Um, consume modest amounts of <clears throat> poly and monounsaturated fats, minimize your alcohol consumption, and then be mindful of your sodium intake, especially if you have uh, hypertension. <coughs> Pardon me. So here's kind of a spectrum of diets that can adhere to these types of principles, right? We have everything from Mediterranean diets, gluten-free diets can follow these principles, DASH diets, if it fits your macros, um, pescatarian diets, paleo diets, vegetarian diets, really the full spectrum of diets outside of things like the carnivore diet, which really kind of eschews a lot of the things in here or some very extreme approaches. Most diets can actually be modified to be very mindful of, you know, how to manage cardiovascular disease over a lifetime. And so with that, uh, thank you guys very much. I very much appreciate you attending um, and look forward to connecting with you guys over this presentation. And here is my contact information. And if anybody would like uh, the slides for this as kind of reference, just go to macrosinc.net slash NASM hyphen CVD hyphen risk, and you'll have a PDF that you can download. And so with that, I will close out and thank you guys very much for your time.